0: Rickets, scurvy, pellagra, these were thought to be infectious diseases over a hundred years ago. But the lengths that scientists went to to prove to people that these were not infectious diseases, but were actually diseases caused by specific deficiencies in nutrients, will surprise you. So stay tuned for this mini-series on vitamins and signs of deficiency and more on the People Scientist Podcast. listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caliguri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello my People Scientist Army and welcome back for episode 27 on the People Scientist Podcast with me, Dr. Stephanie Caliguri. I hope you are all having a great day so far. So let's kick off your day or end off your day, depending on when you are listening, with some scientific knowledge so that you leave today feeling more knowledgeable and empowered because of it. Today we are doing a listener request episode. I was actually requested by three people to cover the topic of vitamin and mineral deficiencies and signs that we may be getting not enough or too much of these nutrients. I started off by putting all of this information into one episode. It was going to be a mega-sized episode. Then I decided to split it into three episodes. And it was still going to be really long episodes. So I've come up with the idea of doing a mini-series where each episode will cover one vitamin or one mineral, And I will disperse these episodes here and there throughout the next several months. The episodes will not only include helpful information to you to be able to spot deficiencies and how to correct them, but also some fascinating history on how scientists in the early 1900s discovered and proved that some illnesses were because of nutrient deficiencies. Some scientists went as far as injecting themselves with the blood of ill patients to prove that The patient's condition was not infectious, but actually a vitamin deficiency. I have so much respect for scientists back then and the lengths that they went to. We take for granted how we need certain vitamins and minerals to be healthy, but back then a serious illness would be because of simply not getting enough of one vitamin. Today we know so much better because of these pioneers. So today I'm going to start us off with an introduction into vitamins, and then we are going to talk about our first vitamin of our mini series, Vitamin C. In today's episode, I will share with you what Vitamin C does for our bodies, signs that we may be deficient in Vitamin C, the best food sources of Vitamin C, and even signs that we may be getting too much of Vitamin C. So let's start off this episode with a question. What do you think? is the vitamin that most people tend to be deficient in. Let's see if your answer is correct by the end of this podcast. So let's start off as we always do with some core takeaways. Vitamins by the meaning of their name mean that they are vital for our health or necessary for us to ingest them from our diet. Our body cannot make them. There are water-soluble vitamins and fat-soluble vitamins. Now, whether the vitamins are water or fat-soluble makes a big difference in the risk for deficiency and the opposite, the risk for toxicity. Vitamin C is a water-soluble vitamin. We realized the importance of vitamin C back in the 1700s during the times of the pirates at sea and a disease called scurvy. Today, these serious, very obvious deficiencies such as scurvy are less common than they used to be but the mild deficiencies that go undetected that could put us at at a higher risk for chronic disease in the long term is more likely and more common as an issue today. Vitamin C is important for our skin, joints, teeth, and our antioxidant defenses against oxidative damage such as air pollution, cigarette smoke, UV sun radiation, and more. Now let's jump into those details. The word vitamin was coined by the Polish scientist Casimir Funk when he discovered the first vitamin, thiamine, in 1912. Many of the vitamins were discovered in this decade and up until the 1940s they were still being discovered, so not that long ago when you really think about it. Vitamin C deficiency was first recorded in soldiers or pirates that would be restricted to a very simple diet – Even though the scientists and doctors didn't know it was specifically due to vitamin C, they knew that adding lime juice or citrus fruits to their diets would cure the illness. Another way that scientists found out certain vitamins were necessary for our health were through animal studies. The scientists would observe the health of animals if certain foods or nutrients were eliminated from their diet. The interesting thing is, scientists couldn't induce vitamin C deficiency in dogs even though they eliminated vitamin C from their diet. It was then that they realized that dogs make their own vitamin C. A third way that scientists proved vitamins were necessary for our health were through some unethical clinical trials, unfortunately. There are some trials published that we can't access online anymore, but I remember reading them from the library at my university during my bachelor's degree in nutrition, For example, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, prisoners who were jailed for committing serious crimes would not necessarily be granted basic human rights anymore and would be the subjects of certain clinical trials. For example, I remember reading a study that in order to prove that vitamin E was essential for health, a group of men that were prisoners were provided a diet extremely low in vitamin E every day. It was noted that these men stopped producing red blood cells, and their current red blood cells hemolyzed or burst, and the men became weak and unwell. Therefore, from this study, it was thought that from that point forward, vitamin E was essential to health and was coined a vitamin. Even though these studies were very unethical, they provided important information at the time. Once vitamins were discovered, they were classified into two categories. Either a vitamin is water-soluble or fat-soluble, meaning that a vitamin either mixes well with the water in our body or mixes well with the fat in our body. Now, water-soluble vitamins include the B vitamins and vitamin C. The fat-soluble vitamins are vitamins A, D, E, and vitamin K. Now, whether a vitamin is water or fat soluble it is important for its ability to be stored in our body. The water soluble vitamins, if we take in too much, are removed from our body by way of our kidneys and our urine. And fat soluble vitamins are more likely to cause toxicity because they are not removed so easily from our body. In today's age, there is a concept called overnutrition, where we may be eating too many calories and eating too much food for our body. But at the same time, it is a paradox because even though we may be eating a lot of food, we aren't eating nutrient-dense food and thus are not taking in enough nutrients that our body needs to properly function. There is a debate that our foods today are not nutritious like they used to be a century ago. However, it could be argued that our foods are even more nutritious now as produce can be selectively bred to be more nutritious. In addition, our foods such as milk, flour, and cereals may be supplemented and fortified with vitamins and minerals. But today, what is the most common nutrient deficiency? Well, in the United States, the vitamin that is most commonly deficient is vitamin B6. But in other countries, this could be different. For example, Sivaprasad earlier this year published that in a city in India, the most common deficiency was vitamin, the B vitamin, riboflavin. And then the second most common deficiency in India was vitamin B6. And I will be speaking about these vitamins later on in our mini-series. But given that introduction into our vitamin series, let's start off with vitamin C. Vitamin C is also called ascorbic acid, and out of all the vitamins and minerals... Vitamin C is the fifth most common nutrient to be deficient in. In the United States alone, around 200,000 cases of scurvy still occur each year. I was really surprised by that because I thought scurvy was, was a condition you know, of the 1700s you know, with the pirates at sea. But surprisingly, like I said, there are still 200,000 cases every year just in the United States alone. Now scurvy is a severe vitamin C deficiency that can present as bleeding gums, loss of teeth, weakness, poor wound healing, achiness, tender swollen joints, chest pain, blurred vision, and many more symptoms, depending on the level of deficiency. Given those symptoms of deficiency of vitamin C, you might be able to guess the role that vitamin C plays in our body. So let's dive into what the functions of vitamin C are. My evidence on the function of vitamin C will be coming from the dietary reference intake files created by the Institute of Medicine. So the first important function of vitamin C is its role as an antioxidant, meaning that it protects our body from oxidative stress and inflammation. This is important as oxidative stress and inflammation are both implicated in chronic diseases such as cancer, heart disease, arthritis, asthma, diabetes, and other conditions. So if someone is deficient in vitamin C, it is possible that they have higher levels of oxidative stress and inflammation. This has been replicated in clinical trials. For example, when Quera in 2004 in the journal Molecular Aspects of Medicine noted that vitamin C levels in the blood were negatively correlated with oxidative stress, meaning the higher the vitamin C in the blood, the lower the oxidative stress and vice versa. So your next question may be, well, how do we know if we have high levels of oxidative stress and if we're getting enough of the vitamin C to negate the oxidative stress? Well, that's the hard part about today's age is knowing if we are deficient in a nutrient. Back then, a deficiency would present in such an obvious manner, but in today, our deficiencies may go and become more subtle and present simply as a higher risk for chronic uh, chronic disease in the long term. So Knowing if we have higher oxidative stress or inflammation is really hard to tell without a blood test, and typically is only noticeable when it appears as an inflammatory condition. And unfortunately, physicians don't really test for oxidative stress and inflammation as part of our annual checkup at the doctor's office, and to be honest, I think they really should. I mean, simply just adding C-reactive protein, for example, to a blood test, it's an indicator of inflammation, would be so helpful for preventative medicine practice. I think that is a topic for a whole other episode. That is, you know, my opinion on how our healthcare is reactive, meaning the healthcare system waits for a patient to become ill before they do anything, whereas we need to be more proactive and prevent illness from happening in the first place. But that is where I hope to be able to help all of you. It is giving you information to make you more knowledgeable so that we can all take hold of our health. But I digress on that opinion and back to the topic at hand. That is a conversation for another episode. But typically only when oxidative stress has manifested as inflammation do we really tend to notice it. For example, high inflammation may be particularly noticed in individuals with inflammatory conditions when they experience flare-ups, such as in arthritis, asthma, or inflammatory bowel disease. But if you don't live with these conditions, it is hard for us to know without a blood test if we have high oxidative stress and inflammation in our body. But my suggestion is to reduce sources of oxidative stress the best you can, such as reducing cigarette smoking, fried food intake, and sugar intake and to make sure that you get adequate sources of vitamin C, which I will speak about soon. Now on to the second function of vitamin C. So the first was that vitamin C combats oxidative stress in our body. The second function in our body is the role of vitamin C in the production of a protein called collagen. Now collagen represents about one-third of our body's protein. Collagen is the most prominent protein in our skin, bones, teeth, cartilage, tendons, blood vessels, heart valves, our spinal column discs, and the cornea lens of our eyes, for example. So if someone is not consuming enough vitamin C, we may notice it in their skin health, for example, an aged, thin, sagging skin appearance. I spoke to this quite a bit in the episode entitled Skin Care Trends That Work Part 2, so give that one a listen if you haven't yet. Vitamin C deficiency may also result in joint issues and joint pain. A third function of vitamin C is its role in the synthesis of muscle carnitine. Now carnitine is required for the transportation of fatty acids into our mitochondria, those powerhouses, to produce energy. So if people are following, for example, a ketogenic diet or doing intermittent fasting, making sure to eat foods rich in vitamin C is really important for your energy levels, and your ability to produce energy from the fats in your body. But in general, no matter the diet you follow, this is important for everyone and your energy levels. Therefore, a vitamin C deficiency may manifest as low energy levels, especially if someone is following a lower-carbohydrate diet. A fourth function is that vitamin C is very important for turning our cholesterol into bile acids. Now, bile acids are used in our digestion of the fats we eat. So a vitamin C deficiency can also manifest as high cholesterol levels or even the development of gallstones or the inability to digest fat properly. So how do we make sure that we take in a good amount of vitamin C? Well, Sleischer in 2009 reported that based on blood test results, of over 7,000 Americans, 7.1% of people were vitamin C deficient. And those who smoked cigarettes tended to have lower levels of vitamin C or were at higher risk for being vitamin C deficient. And that is likely because cigarette smoke is such a strong oxidative stress on the body, and vitamin C is being used up to sequester that oxidative stress. Johnston in 1998 showed that over 30% of people had vitamin C depletion in their blood test, meaning that they had suboptimal levels of vitamin C. That's huge. It's almost one-third of that population. So that could mean that potentially almost one-third of us listening to this podcast right now could have less than ideal levels of vitamin C in our body. That means a reduced ability to combat oxidative stress, reduced ability to produce collagen, that important structural protein in our body, That could mean our reduced ability to generate energy for ourselves, and that could even mean a reduced ability to produce bile acids and have higher cholesterol levels. And the reason why we could be deficient in vitamin C is because NADU in 2003 in the Nutrition Journal detailed how vitamin C is not stored well in the body. It circulates in the blood, yes, but it's used up in the tissues quickly, and any excess that is circulating around is excreted in the urine by the kidneys. As a result, that is why vitamin C needs to be consumed regularly, so that we can maintain adequate levels. We can't just eat healthy for a few days, and then poorly for a few days. Our vitamin C will become depleted rather quickly. So the recommended dietary allowance for vitamin C is 90 milligrams for men, adult men, and 75 milligrams for adult women. That can be easily obtained. To put that into perspective, half a cup of sweet red pepper provides nearly 100 milligrams. One medium orange provides 70 milligrams of vitamin C. Half a cup of strawberries provides 50 milligrams. So it's easy to meet that vitamin C requirement. We can also apply vitamin C creams to our skin in order to promote skin health. And I spoke to this at length in my episode part 2 on the skincare trends that work. But we can't just apply vitamin C topically, we also need to make sure to eat it in our diet. However, it could be argued that these guidelines for the recommended amount of 75 and 90 milligrams per day to consume were meant to prevent serious diseases like scurvy, But what about what amount in order to prevent, for example, inflammation or to maintain joint health or to have optimal energy levels? Do we need more vitamin C? For example, in my episode all about high blood pressure titled The Silent Killer, I mentioned a meta-analysis that looked at vitamin C supplementation and its ability to lower high blood pressure. They had noted that a median dose of 500 milligrams per day of vitamin C was able to effectively lower blood pressure. In 2011, Paragoy noted that those taking vitamin C supplements had a reduced risk of developing knee osteoarthritis. But unfortunately, vitamin C supplementation did not help with reducing the progression of osteoarthritis once it was already diagnosed. But there could be some benefit to supplementation for prevention. So then the important question is, if we are going to take more above the recommended amount, can we take too much vitamin C? Well, in general, it is hard to reach too high of a level of vitamins with food alone. But if taking supplements, then it is possible to reach toxicity. The tolerable upper intake level of vitamin C is set at 2000 milligrams per day. And symptoms of too much vitamin C include, for example, stomach upset, diarrhea, and nausea. Now, to exceed that amount of vitamin C, 2000 milligrams, with food alone would be very difficult. For example, you would have to eat 10 cups of sweet red peppers or nearly 30 oranges to get over 2,000 milligrams. So the risk really comes with taking supplements. But because vitamin C is water-soluble, it is thought that the excess would be removed by the kidneys. So it is not giving as high of a risk, for example, by comparison to the fat-soluble vitamins that stay in our body for a lot longer. But if you can stay below the 2,000 milligrams per day with food or supplements, then it is thought that there are no serious negative side effects. And you know with me, my recommendation is always to have a really solid foundation with your diet first, making sure that you're eliminating you know, any of those harmful negative foods like the, the fried or fast foods and the high sugary foods, and to make sure that you're getting a lot of fruits and vegetables. And then if you want a supplement, To consider that on top of an already healthy, well balanced diet. So, that is a wrap, my people scientist army. That is the first episode in our mini series on vitamins and minerals and how to spot a deficiency and how to avoid a deficiency. I was really surprised today to find out that scurvy is still a condition that is plaguing the United States. You know, I thought. Scurvy, you know, severe vitamin C deficiency was something that happened back in the 1700s, but today there are still 200,000 cases in the United States every year. Vitamin C plays a really important role in the defenses against oxidative stress and inflammation. Vitamin C plays a really important role in our skin and joint health, as well as energy production from the fats we eat, and vitamin C is also really important for the maintenance of healthy cholesterol levels. So please do make sure to get an adequate amount of vitamin C every day. For example, eating sweet red peppers, strawberries, oranges, green leafy vegetables, etc. These are all great sources of vitamin C. And make sure to eat these regularly as vitamin C does not stay stored in our body for very long. And again, lastly, it really surprised me that in one clinical trial, they showed that 30% of people had suboptimal levels of vitamin C. So that could mean that nearly one-third of us listening right now do not have the optimal levels of vitamin C. And if you happen to be a cigarette smoker, then that risk is even higher. So that is it, my people, scientist army. I hope that you found the first episode of this mini-series to be very interesting. If you have any questions, then reach out to me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure to follow me on social media because I like to give little tidbits of extra information throughout the week on the week's topic. And I also like to post things about my life as a scientist in the lab. So make sure to follow me. And if you're enjoying the podcast, then please share with a friend or family member or coworker the podcast and let them also become a part of the People Scientist Army. So I hope you all have a very healthy week, and I will meet you back here next Sunday, the same time and the same place, on the People Scientist podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.